Welcome to the Witnessing History Education Foundation podcast, educating Americans to understand the history of their country and of other countries so that they will appreciate the value of America's unique, free institutions. Become an American hero who participates in our mission by joining us at witnessinghistory.org. Download our documentaries and free teacher education materials that conform to grade-level education standards at pbslearning.org. Follow Witnessing History on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Today, Kent will relate the intriguing story of the Colonel and his lady. Colonel Eugene Irwin, the grandson of Henry Clay, served with the Confederacy in the 6th Missouri Infantry. Thanks to the descendants of Henry Clay, the Corinth, Mississippi Civil War Center now displays Colonel Irwin's uniform and the Van Dorn pattern battle flag under which he fought at Corinth. Kent is going to tell you how the Civil War Center acquired these materials. Well, thank you. Uh, good to be here. Um, I think the best way to approach an answer to that is to back up a little bit to when um, I first saw them, these artifacts. Uh, many years ago, I was uh, at home and was called on the telephone by uh, a, a lady here in Lexington um, who uh, was the widow of Henry Clay Simpson. And her name was Louisiana Wood Simpson. And um, we all called her Lou. And Lou called me up and said, Kent, um, I'd like to show you some Civil War things. And of course, uh, Anytime you get a call like that, uh, if you're a guy like me, uh, obviously your appetite is uh, uh, wetted. You're at a fever pitch almost because you want to see what this is. And so I drove over there and um, Lou let me in the home and um, proceeded to show me some things she had, one of which was a, a book uh, bound volume um, that was composed of a lot of clippings. And the book on the front cover read Book of Memories. Mm. And you opened it up, and there were all kinds of um, pieces of ephemera, documents. And as I was flipping through, um, I saw some military documents that were signed by a Colonel Eugene Irwin. And um, I asked her, I said, is this the um, grandson of Henry Clay? And she said, uh, yes, it is. These are his papers. And um, I said, these are phenomenal. I said, there are lots of military-related things. And then were two passes mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. allow Eugene Irwin's wife and um, daughter and servant to board a steamship called the Imperial on the Mississippi River at Vicksburg 
and proceed to Memphis and then to St. Louis. And um, below that was another pass made out to uh, Lieutenant Hickman. And um, I began looking at him closely, and these passes were in the handwriting of Ulysses S. Grant. That's remarkable. And um, he had apparently penned these out himself mm-hmm. while she was standing in front of him, mm-hmm. and uh, along with the lieutenant. And um, it did say on the lieutenant's pass that once he safely got her to St. Louis, that he was to return to Vicksburg because he was a paroled uh, Confederate soldier. And um, she then took me to another room and showed me a photograph of this Eugene Irwin in his uniform. Mm. And then a photograph of his wife, um, Josephine Russell uh, Irwin. And um, we talked for a little bit about all those items. And then she uh, said to me, well, you know, I have one more thing I'd like to show you, um, but it's in the bedroom. And I said, Lou, that's that's just fine. I trust you. And uh, she was a bird now. She was, she was a funny lady who I adored. But uh, we went into the bedroom, and there on the, on the bed was laid out the Van Dorn pattern battle flag that was carried by the 6th Missouri Infantry. Now, tell us what the Van Dorn pattern looks like. Yeah, it's a strange-looking thing. People these days think of the Confederate flag as being your typical St. Andrew's cross Mm -hmm. that uh, gets so much controversial talk about it. This is known as the Van Dorn pattern, and um, it was prevalent only among troops west of the Mississippi River, Mm -hmm. Louisiana, Arkansas, and Missouri. And it's named for General Earl Van Dorn, who commanded troops in the Trans-Mississippi at the beginning of the war and all the way up through the spring of 1862. Mm -hmm. And what it looks like is a red flag. Um, It has... um, 13 yellow five-pointed stars, uh, five in a row, two rows on one on top of the other, and then three at the top. Mm -hmm. And then in the left upper quadrant of the flag is a crescent moon, also yellow. And then the flag is bordered by a yellow wool fringe. Mm. I mean, it looks like a flag that would come from Syria. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine what that must have looked like in Mrs. Simpson's room <laughs> oh, that day. <laughs> well, uh, let me tell you, um, there are only four of these known to exist. Mm-hmm. And uh, three of them are, two of them are in the museum uh, used to be called the Museum of the Confederacy in Richmond. It's now the American Civil War Museum. Mm-hmm. And then another one, um, if I'm not mistaken, is um, in the uh, Louisiana uh, History Museum. Mm-hmm. And um, But unlike those other three, 
This is the only one that is absolutely identified to a unit. Mm-hmm. And the reason it is so identified is that in the middle of the flag is stitched a piece of linen, and on the linen it reads 6th Missouri Infantry. And then words to the effect that Sergeant William Huff carried this flag at the Battle of Corinth, Mississippi, um, on the 4th of uh, October, 1862, and was wounded nine times Mm. before he fell. Mm -hmm. And... I asked Lou, reading this, I said, "Um, did Josephine prepare that? And she said, yes, she did. She said her husband, Eugene, before he went into fighting at Vicksburg, um, asked her, gave her the flag, and uh, said, would you please write on here what happened to us at Corinth? Mm -hmm. Uh, and someone would ask, well, why would he give away the flag? Well, it just so happened that at the time he did that, all the Missouri regiments got new flags. I see. And the new flags they got were blue flags mm-hmm. with a white Latin cross bordered in red. Mm. They're absolutely spectacular, different. but totally different looking mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And um, the old Van Dorn flags then were retired. And so he gave it to her and said, being the colonel of the regiment, he said, I want you to put on there what happened at Corinth. And that's how that got there. So, I mean, it, it was a, a stunning thing to see. Um, mm-hmm. I'll never forget it. Obviously, I'm still talking about it. Um, <laughs> and. What would be wonderful to hear about is how that flag made the journey from Vicksburg to mm-hmm. Lexington, Kentucky, and how it arrived well, where it is today. I, what we can do, if you'd like, is go back and start with a little bit about Eugene and Josephine, Yes, uh, how they met, mm-hmm. and um, uh, what their life story was, mm-hmm. and let me do this. I'll do this very fast. Okay. Um, Eugene Irwin was the son of James Irwin, um, who was born in Asheville, North Carolina, raised in Tennessee, uh, but then came to Lexington looking for a fortune, wanted to practice law here and so forth. And James Irwin married Anne Brown Clay who was Henry Clay's fifth child. He had 11 children, he and Lucretia. Mm-hmm. Um, th- three of them died in infancy. Mm-hmm. And then two of them, young Lucretia and Henry Clay Jr., uh, died as young people. Henry Clay Jr. was died at the Battle of Buena Vista mm-hmm. in February 1847. But uh, Anne Brown Clay was kind of a favorite of Henry Clay's, although I sense she was never well. Um, Henry Clay died of tuberculosis, and I suspect that infected most of that household. Mm. And Anne uh, married uh, James Irwin, 
um, in October 1823. And um, <clears throat> they, uh, they had um, a number of children, um, one of whom was Andrew Eugene Irwin, who was born in October 1833. Anne Brown Clay uh, actually died um, just um, two years after Eugene was born. Mm. Again, probably of tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. um, it just seems to fit that story. Eugene was born here in Lexington at a house that Henry Clay helped establish for the Irwins called the Woodlands. And it stood on what is now Woodland Park. Mm. That's where Woodland Park gets its name. Mm -hmm. And um, he grew up there. Of course, he, his, his mother died very young, when he was very young. And um, uh, as he grew up, he saw Henry Clay's son having served as a colonel in the army. He saw one of, his, uh, one of Henry Clay's grandsons, Henry Clay III, go to West Point. Mm -hmm. And um, he desperately wanted to go to West Point. And Henry Clay felt that would not look right, having a grand, two grandsons at West Point at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so he dissuaded uh, Eugene from that. And Eugene wound up telling his grandfather, well, then I'd like to work at a collecting house and go into that kind of business. So he actually worked in a collecting house in New York City. But in March 1851... The Pacific Mail Steamship Company that was founded by the two Aspinwall brothers, uh, William and Lloyd Aspinwall, offered him a position to uh, work in its Pacific offices. Mm -hmm. Those offices were in Monterey, California. Now, interestingly, um, there was living in Monterey, California, a family Henry Clay knew, knew very well. And this is the, um, the Russell family. And um, this, um, this Russell family, Colonel uh, William Henry Russell um, and his wife, uh, Zanette Friedland Russell, were living out there. He had been a Kentuckian. His father was Robert Spotswood Russell, very famous Virginian for whom Russell County is named, Russellville is named. Um, Russell Cave here in Lexington, the road is named for them. I see. And um, <clears throat> it, it, apparently Colonel Russell was instrumental in the House of Representatives when um, Clay was first elected to the United States Senate. Mm -hmm. Then the uh, state legislature elected senators. Mm -hmm. And Russell was a significant figure in getting Clay elected to the United States Senate. The Russells then moved to Missouri. Uh, they went to Callaway County, Missouri, where they stayed for some years. And then he moved to California. And um, he first moved there to become the uh, Secretary of State to Governor John C. Fremont. Mm -hmm. And in 1851, he was appointed Collector of Customs at Monterey. Now, Henry Clay loved all his kids and his grandchildren. And it doesn't take 
too much to understand that Henry Clay probably worked this out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he probably um, wrote to the Russells and told him of this young man, this mm-hmm. grandson, and uh, that he, we, we've got him uh, coming to a job in Monterey. And here's the Russells. He's the collector of customs. And by the way, the oldest building in California, it is number one on the California Historic Register, mm-hmm. is the Customs House in Monterey. It's still standing. Wow. This is where the Russells lived and where Colonel William Russell worked. Okay. So it's still there. Interesting. Now, yeah. they, now what, what, what makes this story fun now is that um, uh, they had a daughter named Josephine, mm-hmm. who was about the same age as Irwin. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, working in Monterey and um, uh, along the, uh, the, the harbor there, he was constantly in touch with these people, probably lived for a while with them. Mm-hmm. And um, to make a long story short, the two of them fell in love and decided to um, to get married, and um, they uh, the two of them rode all the way back to Callaway County, Missouri, and there they were married in July 1853. Josephine mm-hmm. Russell and Eugene Irwin. Okay. Uh, they decided to settle in Independence, Missouri, in Jackson County. And the reason they decided to go there was that he, Eugene, wanted to become involved in um, his own business. And if you'll recall, this is the 1850s, the great trails that led to the Pacific, uh, the Santa Fe Trail, all originate out of independence. In Missouri, yeah. And so he thought if he could open up a dry goods store Mm -hmm. that would help settlers acquire the goods they need to get across the plains, that uh, it could make a good living. Mm-hmm. And apparently because of the, the estate left behind by his father, who was not a very savory character in many ways, mm. who left an enormously complicated estate. He bought land without reference to his wife. He put it <laughs> in the names of other people. And so the minute he died... The, the lawsuits flew, and he was living then in New Orleans, mm-hmm. which is where, <laughs> go figure. And so Henry Clay tried to intervene in some of that, um, but he died in 1852, in June of 1852, and never really saw it to the end. And we really don't know whether there was much acquired by Eugene Irwin as a result of that estate. Mm-hmm. But there was probably something. And whatever there was, he was going to use it to try to build a business. And so they moved to Independence, and there, before the Civil War, by the time the Civil War broke out, they had three children. Mm -hmm. They were all daughters. Uh, Lucretia Clay was born in 1854. Her nickname was Lula. Mm -hmm. And then Nettie Russell in 1857, and then Mary Webster in 1861. And by the way, the descendants of those three girls, they're all still here. 
Mm-hmm. Lots of them are all still here. Mm-hmm. Um, when the war broke out um, in 1861, um, Eugene cast his lot with the, um, with the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. And the reason he did so was simply that's where all his neighbors were. That's where all his acquaintances were mm-hmm. in Independence, Missouri. And he joined an Indo- a, a Missouri militia unit. And he fought at the Battle of Wilson's Creek in 1861 and then again at Pea Ridge or Elkhorn Tavern. Uh, but by May 1862, he had been named lieutenant colonel of the 6th Missouri Infantry. Mm-hmm. And um, he would take command of the 6th Missouri Infantry at Guntown, Mississippi. Imagine that name. Mm. In August 1862, and he would be its colonel and its commander. And he, he was there taking over command of, or, or named a lieutenant colonel in May. So that unit missed the fighting at Shiloh. Right, that was which is April. just north of mm-hmm. Corinth and just across the border from Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, but he withdrew with the rest of the Confederate Army that in, in the in the in the weeks and months after the Battle of Shiloh back to uh, um, Tupelo, and then began an operation which resulted in the Battle of Corinth, mm-hmm. and. Um, what you have is Corinth, Mississippi, is the site of two great railroads crossing one another. Mm-hmm. So it's a great crossing. It's, yeah. That's why it's called Corinth. Corinth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you have the Memphis and Charleston Railroad from Memphis, Tennessee, going through Corinth all the way to Chattanooga. And then from Chattanooga, you can get rail lines that take you to Richmond, Virginia, or you can get rail lines that would take you down to the Carolinas. It would li- that was the, literally the longest east-west railroad in America. Mm-hmm. Out of Columbus, Kentucky, was another railroad that ran north to south. And that uh, is now the Illinois uh, Central Railroad. Then it was the Gulf Mobile or, or the Mobile and Ohio Railroad. Mm-hmm. Um, for many, many years, and ultimately the Mo- Gulf Mobile and Ohio Mobile and Ohio Railroad in the 20th century, but that railroad began in Columbus, Kentucky, went south all the way through Corinth, crossed the Memphis and Charleston, mm. straight down to Tupelo, and all the way to Mobile. That was the longest north-south railroad in America, and so Corinth became a critical site. Sure. And um, the object in the late summer of 1862 in the Confederate high command in the West Mm -hmm. was to find a means by which they could attack Corinth and retake it. The federal troops after Mm -hmm. Shiloh had come in and taken Corinth. Mm -hmm. And so this is the first major engagement in which um, Eugene Irwin is going to command the 6th Missouri and he does so on the on October 3rd through the 5th, 1862. Now, this, to protect Corinth, the federal forces built huge gun emplacements around all those railroad lines. Mm-hmm. 
and then infantry trenches and emplacements connecting these gun emplacements for, for field artillery. And the object was that um, the Confederate forces would attack those emplacements north of the Memphis and Charleston. Mm -hmm. And then some would try to attack it from the south and the east. And uh, if they could break through the outer works, get to the inner works, and then break through them, they could take mm -hmm. Corinth. So beginning on the 3rd of October, 1862, they tried. And um, the 6th Missouri and uh, General Martin Green's brigade of Louis Hebert's division in Sterling Price's command, Sterling Price's from Missouri, mm -hmm. um, they attacked the works north of the Memphis and Charleston and north of, of Corinth. And there, um, in a stand-up fight, um, the command of Eugene Irwin, which went into the fight at nearly 400 strong, his regiment, mm -hmm. came out with 23 men. He was wounded. Now, some of these men would recover from wounds. Some of them, uh, of course, would not. But um, in, in the sum total... Um, within three, four months of the fighting at Corinth, probably half the regiment was, mm. was left. Mm. Um, it was just a devastating attack. And, and Irwin himself was badly wounded in the foot. And um, he was taken to Holly Springs where he um, recuperated and then um, rejoined his command. Um, and as he rejoined his command... In the um, late fall of 1862, it was directed to the defenses of Vicksburg. And um, so Eugene and, and the 6th Missouri were sent to, to Vicksburg, and they were first deployed at a place called Grand Gulf, uh, just above the pretty little town, even today, of Port Gibson, Mississippi. Yes. And Grand Gulf is a uh, is a bluff overlooking the Mississippi on the on the Mississippi side, of course, mm -hmm. uh, where there were significant artillery emplacements to prevent shipping from coming up or down the Mississippi River. At least shipping they didn't want mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> federal shipping. And um, then there were all sorts of entrenchments for infantry and so forth up there. Mm -hmm. And um, where there was elaborate defenses being made in Vicksburg, there were also defenses that were significantly separated from Vicksburg. And this one at Grand Gulf is one of them. And so there's where they were assigned. And um, for weeks, uh, he would communicate, send, write letters to Josephine, who was still in Independence, Missouri. And finally, Josephine learned that... Um, um, her husband is not doing well, mm -hmm. that he is sick. And um, you can see this, this recurring thing, this tubercular problem mm -hmm. with the family, and, um, which is common in the 19th century, by the way. This mm -hmm. was really common in the 19th century. And um, she decides to – they have three girls. Uh, two of them are real young. One of them was only born in 1861. Mm -hmm. 
And so she decides to leave the two young ones with a housekeeper. And she takes a servant and Lula. And they get in a wagon and they go all the way from Independence to St. Louis. Once they get to St. Louis, she um, boards a steamer, which takes her to Memphis. They can't get any farther. Okay. At Memphis, those three land, and she finds a way to get a wagon and horses and takes that all the way to Grand Gulf. Now, she had heard that he was at Grand Gulf, mm -hmm. but um, how she wound up finding it going, and I tell you, you can ride on Interstate 55 from Memphis to, oh, to Jackson, We've Mississippi. Done it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's an endless ride, mm -hmm. it is an enormous distance. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but she winds up in the, um, at Grand Gulf and is reunited with Eugene, if you can imagine. That's incredible. Well, um, you continue to fast forward here. Um, no sooner are they reunited than there's a threat to Vicksburg. And mm -hmm. the threat is in a Union army of the Tennessee mm -hmm. commanded by Ulysses S. Grant that is uh, descending the Mississippi River. Mm -hmm. Uh, all through the winter, Grant has tried to figure out a mechanism to strike Vicksburg. He can't just land troops at Vicksburg and think they're going to get on ground because of the heavy guns that are placed along that river mm -hmm. to it's defend up, it. It's up on a bluff. And it's on a big, mm -hmm. it's on a bluff, yeah. And there are gun emplacements all over those bluffs. Mm -hmm. And there would be no chance for them to attack it frontally. So Grant's got to figure out how to get there. Mm -hmm. He tries a means of, of attacking it from the north, um, and it winds up a disaster. Um, and then he finally figures out what he can do is, tr is move his army across Louisiana, on the Louisiana side, go all the way to Louisiana. And then, in order to get the transport vessels down there— mm -hmm to transport the troops from Louisiana to Mississippi across the river. He has to get that entire freshwater Navy down there mm -hmm. that has the transport vessels, mm -hmm. as well as the gunboats to protect the crossing. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that um, um, he's going to determine to what you call run the Vicksburg batteries with, these, with his Navy, the freshwater Navy. Mm -hmm. So David Porter's fleet on April 16, with its troop transports, his gunboats, everything, at dark, uh, descends the river, comes within range of those guns, and the Confederates let, them, let everything loose on them. Mm -hmm. And they manage to pass it with the loss of some, some boats, mm -hmm. but they pass it. They get enough by. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, by April 29, Grant and David Dixon Porter, the, the admiral of that fleet, have enough vessels uh, 
in the Mississippi, just between Grand Gulf and Vicksburg, to believe they can get by Grand Gulf next. Mm-hmm. So on it's the, a massive operation. Oh, it's huge. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, you've got an army of nearly 100,000 troops and a navy that's, that's – this is a com, what we call a combined operation. Mm-hmm. And so on the 29th of April, that fleet then runs by Grand Gulf. And I can't remember – I remember being at Grand Gulf um, and, and uh, reading the, the amount of tonnage of shells mm-hmm. that were hurled at the Confederate defenses at Grand Gulf. It's astronomical. Mm-hmm. Um, but they pass those guns. So now they're south of Grand Gulf, just, to, just in the river below Port Gibson. Mm-hmm. And there's a little village located on the Mississippi called Bruinsburg. Bruinsburg. Mm-hmm. And there is where they're going to land all these troops, go to the Louisiana side of the river, pick them up, take them across the river, leave them off, go back to the Louisiana. And these vessels just come back and forth relaying troops. And the first uh, uh, corps, 13th Corps, gets across the river on the uh, 1st of May, uh, 1863. And this is John A. McLearned's 13th Corps. Mm -hmm. And as they're forming there along the the beach, um, Eugene Irwin's regiment is quickly called to help defend the town of Port Gibson. Okay, And so he journeys with his regiment on foot eight miles to finally come into the lines. And uh, all day long, on the 1st of May, they defend uh, Port Gibson ultimately. And he's very ill. I mean, he's very mm. sick. Mm. But they put up a hell of a fight. and uh, But still, they, the federal troops keep landing more and mm-hmm. more and more. And they yeah. keep getting onto their flanks. And it becomes impossible. Mm-hmm. So they break off. The defense. Mm-hmm. And, um, you, you know, Josephine, uh, after the war, wrote novels. Mm-hmm. And there were kind of post-war, um, what do they call it, oh, kind of a, a, a lost cause kind mm-hmm. of novels, reminiscing about what it was like when. Mm-hmm. But she has one passage in there, in one of her many novels, that is almost autobiographical. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole novel is almost autobiographical. But this one passage is that she, the, the, the figure in the book is at Port Gibson, like mm-hmm. she was. Yes. And at the fighting, as the fighting ends and the Confederates begin to withdraw out of there, they get across the bridges of Bayou Pierre. Mm-hmm. It's a huge, it's a river that runs through Port Gibson. Right. As they go across the bridges, they pour coal oil on those bridges and set them on fire. Mm. And here it is, one and two in the morning, and these bridges are all burning outside of pretty little Port Gibson. Mm-hmm. And the army withdraws. Yes. And um, it's just it's a, it's a spectacular image. sort of yeah image mm-hmm. that you put in your head. To make a long story short of this, the, the Confederate forces not only withdrew back from Port Gibson— Grant basically pushed them all the way to the outskirts of Jackson, Mississippi, the capital. Uh, he winds up seizing Jackson, burning all the uh, industry and, and uh, internal workings of the city. Mm-hmm. While the Confederate forces start to now back up 
with their back to the West, and they're now withdrawing back toward Vicksburg as Grant is pressuring them from the East, from mm -hmm. Jackson. Mm -hmm. And there's a major engagement at the Big Black River uh, outside of Vicksburg on the 17th of May, and it caused the Confederates again to withdraw, and they retired completely across the Big Black and then on into the defenses of Vicksburg. And no sooner does Grant come up to the defenses of Vicksburg, and these are elaborate defenses, uh, then on May 19, he orders an assault against them. Mm. And they attack places like Stockade, Redan, Sherman's uh, 15th Corps, that was on the 19th of May. In fact, I think on the 19th of May, there were more medals of honor awarded in one day than any other time in the war. Wow. But Grant failed. Right. He failed. Mm -hmm. uh, he tries again on the 22nd of May. Mm -hmm. This time he used, he fights, he, he literally attacks everything uh, 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 east of Vicksburg. And he uses Sherman's as well as uh, uh, James Birdseye McPherson's corps, mm -hmm. both of those corps, to make the assault. Mm -hmm. And um, they fail. Mm -hmm. That's how tough these defenses are at Vicksburg. Yeah. Then finally, the assaults are renewed on the next day, this time by General Ord's 13th Corps. He had taken over from John McLearned. Grant sacked McLearned mm -hmm. and put in his buddy, old General Ord. And, um, and that failed. So here, Grant, three days. With in everything May, the with Union everything he's can got, throw at it. And he, mm -hmm. can't, he can't break into it. Mm -hmm. And so... He put set the stage now. Mm -hmm. um, Eugene Irwin is in Vicksburg. Josephine is with him. Mm -hmm. um, after the last failure on May 23rd, Grant decides he's just going to lay siege to the city, just cut it off from mm -hmm. everything. And, and we have diaries of oh. that siege, very oh, famous. Yeah, 47 days. 47 days. And there's no food Mm -hmm. There's no munitions. They're living in caves. They're living in the caves, city. eating mm -hmm. rats, dogs, mules, Whatever anything they can, they can find. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so for 47 days, um, Grant lays siege. He at one time decides he's going to try to break his own siege mm -hmm. by breaking the lines of the Confederates. Mm -hmm. And the way to break those lines is to dig a mine. Mm bury about 2,200 pounds of gunpowder mm -hmm. and blow it up. Mm -hmm. And once it's blown up, then take your commands nearest to where that happens and try to push them through there. Yeah. So you create a breach in the defenses and then push okay. your troops in there. Mm -hmm. um, well, there's a uh, redan on, they call it redan. It's a, a gun emplacement that overlooks the Jackson Road, the main road coming into Vicksburg from the east. Mm -hmm. And this has always been known as the 3rd Louisiana Redan. And if you go to Vicksburg, you can see the 3rd Louisiana Redan because it's all still intact. It is. It's, yeah. And um, that was held by a regiment, the 3rd Louisiana Infantry um, in uh, Louis Hebert's brigade. These guys had fought with the 6th Missouri mm -hmm. through m many engagements. Mm -hmm in uh, John H. Forney's division. And um, the 6th Missouri was in, in a rear uh, posture, posture in the rear of the, of the army, mm -hmm. uh, probably near where the city cemetery is. Mm -hmm. 
And they were there as a reserve. He, uh, the, the whole six, the six, the whole Missouri Brigade was there. Um, the first, fourth, fifth, and six Missouri infantries were all in this reserve position. And um, Grant decides that he's going to try to mine underneath that redan. Mm-hmm. And um, so he has uh, he, he assigns one of his artillery officers, also a pretty good engineer named. Um, um, Andrew Hickenlooper, <laughs> and if you go to Vicksburg, Hickenlooper's bronze memorial is staring at the Third Louisiana Redan. <laughs> but he oversees all these troops who are literally mining under the ground mm. to, uh, and then they would build parallel uh, gun, uh, parallel trenches. So as the mine got deep closer to the Redan, infantry could get on either side of it and fire. At the defenders. Now, were the were the Louisianans aware of the efforts? Oh, they knew exactly what they was what was really? happening. They even they even dug a countermine. Really? But okay. so aware were they that save for the skirmish lines mm-hmm. facing the Union troops as they were trying to get to that, mm-hmm. they withdrew almost everything out of that redan to the rear including the uh, Arkansas Appeal Battery, a four-gun battery of um, three-inch ordnance rifles mm-hmm. were withdrawn out of there so because they didn't want to have, lose them. Right. They knew they were going to blow them on. Okay. So <laughs> so here, here, here they go, and, and um, they get underneath there. They, they bring in 2,200 pounds of, of gunpowder, and on the— um, uh, uh, late at night, late in the afternoon, on uh, June 25th, 1863. Remember, they tried to, to assault them on the 19th of May, the 22nd mm-hmm. of May, the 23rd of May. And then this operation starts. And finally, on the 25th of June, um, they basically light the fuses. <laughs> and this entire redan just goes up. This explodes. It's the mother of all bombs. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and, and by the way. It's when, the bunker buster. Yeah. By the way, our listeners will probably, uh, will undoubtedly hear me and um, uh, Will Green. Talking about Talking about the crater at Petersburg, mm-hmm. which was formed the same way. It was mm-hmm. another mining operation. This was Grant's first attempt at a mine. Mm-hmm. Well, it blew up. And then. The third Louisiana came back into the into the picture and mm-hmm. began to resist the attack, which wasn't expected. Yeah, they well, thought they'd obliterated the third Louisiana. Yeah, they did. Their Union troops did, mm-hmm. but they here comes an entire regiment of the the, the third Louisiana, mm-hmm. and behind them is called the sixth Missouri. Okay, that's Eugene. So that's Eugene Irwin. There's our hero. And mm-hmm. Eugene <laughs> and Eugene brings forward the 6th Missouri. And um, there are some great quotes from soldiers in the 3rd Louisiana as they see the 6th Missouri come alongside them. These are our old friends we had fought on many a field with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Eugene, um, there are eyewitnesses to this. Eugene has his staff and field officer's sword in his hand, and he yells for his men to follow him. And he mounts 
the barricade, the, the, the wall of that, what was left of that Redan. Mm-hmm. And as he gets over on the top, he comes within the sights of all those muskets from the Union mm-hmm. troops. Mm-hmm. They open up a tremendous volley and three bullets hit him in the chest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Eugene Irwin falls dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, nevertheless, the attack of the 6th Missouri and the 3rd Louisiana is successful. And uh, Grant is unable to break through mm, the, uh, the lines. Mm-hmm. Well, um, his troops, Eugene's troops, um, bring his body back mm-hmm. to their camp, again, probably near the city cemetery. Mm-hmm. And there they probably uh, buried it in the Mississippi River. Um, mm. with a weight and let it sink like you would bury a sailor at sea. Mm. Uh, there's probably little else they could have done. Okay. And yet here in Lexington, in the cemetery... There's a marker to it. There is a marker. Mm-hmm. I know, and I'll, I'll get to okay. w- about that marker. I didn't realize he wasn't buried there. No, okay. I, don't, I don't think he is. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I'll talk about that in just a minute. Okay. Um. So here's Josephine uh, left with nothing. She has her little daughter and the, the uh, African-American servant mm-hmm. that accompanied them and um, uh, starved to death, dirty as can be. You can imagine living like that in a cave mm. uh, because of the bombardments from the Union lines were so ferocious that, um, I mean, you had to either live in a cave or you'd die out there. Mm -hmm. And um, with nothing to eat, and here's a little child. Mm -hmm. And and to make matters worse, uh, she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. And um, she's in desperate circumstances. She's in desperate circumstances. And um, it just so happens, sometimes things happen Mm -hmm. that... um, are remarkable. Mm-hmm. It so happens that among the prisoners after the surrender at Vicksburg on the on the Fourth of July, Vicksburg mm-hmm. surrendered to Grant, mm-hmm. uh, and all those Confederates who were the defenders became uh, subject to being paroled, which meant they their officers signed a statement saying they would not bear arms unless exchanged. And they were all waiting for their paroles because Grant would have to print them. Mm-hmm. And um, while they were waiting, um, Lieutenant William Hickman happened to see a Union officer walk by him. And he recognized him because this Union officer appeared to be the same one who was his prisoner of war <laughs> a- after the fighting at Corinth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this... This this Union Amazing. officer was Colonel Thomas Fletcher, okay. who um, commanded the 31st Missouri Union okay. Infantry. So they were Missouri officers. This is like a Kentucky story where I'll you've say. got them fighting on both sides. Mm-hmm. And um, Fletcher, after the war, would become governor of Missouri. Okay. This, this, yeah. was, this was a, 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 apparently a man of significant stature. Mm-hmm. But uh, Hickman saw him. And hailed to him. He says, uh, Colonel, uh, do you remember me? And the colonel turned around and looked and said, yes, I remember you. Mm-hmm. You were so kind to me at Corinth. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. when I was your prisoner. He says, how are you doing? <laughs> and he says, well, you can imagine what he would respond to is that, to that. But he says, he says, can I do anything for you? Imagine. And, and Hickman said, not for me. He says, but you can for the widow of our colonel, who you will remember. And mm-hmm. he says, yes, I do remember him. Mm-hmm. And he was killed on the 25th of June. This is the 4th, 5th, or 6th of July, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's after the surrender. And Fletcher says, where is she? And Hickman said, she's living in a cave. Uh, told him the approximate location of that cave, mm. where that actually was. We have no idea. Maybe, again, near the cemetery, present-day cemetery. And Fletcher turns to him and he says, quote, I can take care of that, end quote. Mm. So Fletcher He's... goes and finds her mm-hmm. and says, if you would follow me, I'll take you to Grant's headquarters and we'll see if we can get you out. So Josephine, now Mm -hmm. get this. Eugene gave her that battle flag, Mm -hmm. that Van Dorn flag. Mm -hmm. She wraps it around her waist under her dress Mm -hmm. and then comes back out of the cave and says, I'm ready to go. (laughs) So Fletcher takes her to the Lum House on Washington Street in Vicksburg and the Lum House is no longer there, but it was Grant's headquarters, mm-hmm. and it overlooked the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. And they walk inside, and Fletcher introduces Josephine to Grant. Mm-hmm. And um, Grant uh, uh, is very gracious, uh, then asks her, what can I do for you, ma'am? And Fletcher says, uh, General, her husband was killed on the 25th of June at the mine. And um, he's the grandson of Henry Clay. Mm. And this is his widow. And she has a little daughter and an African-American servant. Mm -hmm. And um, they would like to try to get out. Mm -hmm. They're starved and dirty and they need to get home. Grant sits down and writes out those two passes that Lou Simpson showed to me. Can you imagine this? All in his own handwriting. Right. Their names, he gets their names. Mm-hmm. Then, for a, then for a Lieutenant Hickman, he, he says, I, I, want, I want the lieutenant to accompany her. Mm-hmm. But he said to Fletcher, remind him he's to be paroled. Mm-hmm. So he's got to come he's back here. Come back. Yeah. Fletcher said he would tell him. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he told Grant that he and Hickman have gotten to be friends. Mm-hmm. And um, so Grant then stands up, hands the passes to Josephine, and um, then extends his hand to shake her hand, says, I- it's been a pleasure meeting you, and she would not shake his hand. Mm. Hard feelings. Mm-hmm. Well, her she's husband has just been killed. Yeah, she's overwhelmed. With grief. Anyway, yeah. Grant says fine, and, mm-hmm. and they leave. Mm-hmm. They board the steamer Imperial, mm-hmm. which takes Josephine and her daughter and servant and the lieutenant all the way to St. Louis, where they depart. 
Hickman then takes the steamer back to Vicksburg, mm-hmm. and she goes all the way, God knows how, to Independence, Missouri. That is remarkable. What an amazing story. And, and yet there's more. And there's more. <laughs> um, She's an incredible woman. But she, you know, for all of Colonel Irwin's never having served as a soldier, mm-hmm. it appears to me that the 6th Missouri found a real strong sense of leadership in him. You, 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 I tell you, the official records of the War of the Rebellion mm-hmm. contain the reports of officers, mm-hmm. of regiments, Commanders of regiments, commanders of brigades, divisions, sort. Mm-hmm. You cannot read um, any reports of any of his superior officers, brigade commanders, division commanders, who don't state that this was an exemplary officer. Every one of them. After every engagement, whether it's the mm. Big Black River, or whether it's at Corinth, or whether it's his actions at Vicksburg. But he wasn't the one who went to West Point. That was yeah. his cousin. Yeah, and he mm-hmm. didn't. He didn't complete West Point. Henry Clay the Third. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So this guy, this guy had had, the, had this quote the stuff, mm-hmm. and um, was a great soldier. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, she so she is back in Independence. Well, she's there's there's nothing for her there. Mm-hmm. Her whole life is gone now. Her husband's gone. All the friends are gone. Most of them are at the war. Some of them have never returned, probably never will. Mm-hmm. And then they de- then the Union occupation force in forces in uh, Missouri declare martial law oh my. and order any Confederate sympathizers to leave the state. Mm-hmm. So you, Josephine, there's only one thing she can do. Mm-hmm. She writes a letter to John Morrison Clay. Henry Clay's youngest son, who took over Henry Clay's bloodstock business, raising cattle and horses, uh, while Henry Clay was still alive, mm-hmm. and ran it now, ran it in the middle, in the during the war, and his his uh, his farm where he lived was not at Ashland. His brother James lived there. Mm-hmm. But he lived at a place called Ashland on the Tate's Creek Pike. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who are locals who know Lexington, Christ the King, Christ the King Cathedral stands on the approximate site of Tate's Creek, of, of Ashland on the Tate's Creek Pike. Oh, my. And there... Um, he lived in a Greek revival home, mm-hmm. a brick house, beautiful brick house, and raised horses and Hereford cattle. And um, he, I mean, he was a great, great farmer. He's a stock Term- farmer. Yes, great stock farmer. Mm-hmm. And um, he, but but interestingly, he was a Lincoln supporter and a Republican. Oh my. And what's interesting is that so was Josephine's father and mother. The Russells. Mm -hmm. The Russells. So imagine how difficult all this was. Mm -hmm. But John Clay writes her back saying— Here's a Confederate widow. A Confederate widow who, by the way— Yeah, and he knew Eugene. Of course. Because he grew up with him. Well, Eugene grew up with him. He grew up with him. Mm -hmm. And he says, please, join me. Come Mm -hmm. over, come live in Lexington. 
Mm-hmm. So Josephine Russell gets her her three little ones in a wagon. She lost the baby mm. that she was uh, with, she was pregnant, mm-hmm. and in January of sixty four. Mm-hmm. And um, so she has her three little daughters, and they go from Independence, Missouri, all the way to Lexington. I mean, I just can't even begin to think of no, what that was like. Just... And John Clay welcomes him to his home, and um, there starts another chapter that uh, is almost as remarkable as the prior ones. Um she becomes involved with him in the business. And um, when uh, John, uh, uh, well, this way, they fall in love. And he was Josephine, a, he was a bachelor. He was a bachelor. Never been married. And he was living with his mother, Lucretia, right? Lucretia at, was living there. At Ashland. Right. And then she died at the, mm-hmm. uh, in the, in, toward the end of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, so, John Morrison Clay and Josephine Irwin mm-hmm. are married. In 1866. In 1866. She's 28. On, he's 47. On July 7th, I think it was 1866. Okay. And um, so, she's been married to the grandson of Henry Clay. Mm-hmm. Now she's married to Henry Clay's youngest son. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> Truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah, we couldn't write this story. No, no, you couldn't write this story. This is a, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, when when um, John Clay uh, dies, mm-hmm. uh, Josephine uh, winds up taking over the farm. Mm-hmm. And get this. Now, he dies in about 1887. 1887. So they're married for about right. 20 years. About 20 years. Wow. Okay. And she takes over the farm. Mm-hmm. And she becomes the first commercial, first woman commercial horse breeder in the world. Now, this farm, by the way, is no small thing. I mean, right. they have raised, they'll raise two Kentucky Derby winners. Mm. Uh, Riley, um, I forgot the other one, um, two early Kentucky Derby winners. They will raise um, three or four English Derby winners out mm. there. They'll have uh, mares standing out there that uh, from them will come like six more Kentucky Derby winners. Wow. It's one of the most remarkable uh, horse farms of its time anywhere and in this, the world. And this is a huge farm. It's a huge farm. 25 miles of plank and rail fences. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And you would see her, by the way, out on the farm. She knew every horse, it seems, by name. We would call them by their name, and they'd all walk over and mm-hmm. uh, and, and greet her. Mm-hmm. But she would be, uh, you would see her with a um, um, uh, a, a a dress or even some uh, britches mm-hmm. um, and a uh, a shirt with a broad-brimmed hat and a Colt pistol <laughs> stuck in her belt in you the front. You didn't mess with Josephine. You didn't mess with Josephine, no. <laughs> and and she, um, uh, she would be seen every day like that. Hmm. And um, when finally the um, – uh, 
the, the it was almost her time, really. Her time had kind of run out as a manager of this business. Mm-hmm. And the business began to fail. And just before she died, um, they, had a, they had an auction of the whole place and mm-hmm. all the stock, mm-hmm. which must have been terrible, frankly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the Herald-Leader, the, 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 the forerunner of the Herald-Leader, a reporter came up to her after the sale and ask her um, how she felt it went. And she said, well, I think it went fine. Uh, And then he goes, well, Josephine, let me ask you, do you have any regrets in life? And she says this to him. She says, yes, I do, one. And that is I didn't shake Grant's hand. Mm -hmm. She remembered that one. Mm -hmm. And it almost brings the whole story to mm-hmm. a, a, a wonderful conclusion. It really does. <laughs> yeah. But that's the story of the colonel and his lady. That's a wonderful story. I've another, loved it. Another remarkable tale out of Kentucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With strong characters and yeah, yeah. just amazing people of They're, extraordinary will and strength. Strength and will is right. And, mm-hmm. and toughness mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, could withstand almost anything that was put mm-hmm. in their place. Mm-hmm. And triumph. There's, yes. a, there's a huge triumph in this um, all across the board. And for her in particular— and then the remarkable way the descendants preserved these yeah. items yeah. that are now in the Corinth Civil War right. Center. Well, thank you, Kent, for You're welcome. telling us this story today. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. Another great chapter in witnessing history. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Always. Become an American hero who participates in our mission by joining us at witnessinghistory.org. Download our documentaries and free teacher education materials that conform to grade-level education standards at pbslearning.org. Follow Witnessing History on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.